Um, speaking of Israel, there was, uh, you've maybe heard me share the story before, but there was a man and a wife that went on a tour of Israel. And uh, the, the wife was kind of just a habitual nagging kind of wife, you know, and the husband's like, ah, you know, just living with it. And while they're over on Israel on the tour, his wife died. And uh, so the husband's talking with, you know, an undertaker there, and the undertaker's saying, listen, we can have your wife buried right here in the Holy Land for only $500, or you can have her, you know, sent back home to have the burial there in a cemetery of your choosing. That would cost $5,000. And the undertaker's, what would you like to do? And the man thought about it for a minute. He goes, you know what? We better have her sent back home and, and do it there. And the undertaker's like, why would you do that when you can have her buried right here in the promised land, the Holy Land, for $500 as opposed to $5,000? And the husband said, well, 2,000 years ago, a man came visiting this land. He died, and he rose again three days later. I just can't take that chance. So, here's what we know. The resurrection is true, reliable, dependable. And here's what Paul says now in verse 20 as he continues on this thought, because the beginning of the chapter, he's been dealing with the proof and the validity of the resurrection, that this is something that we just cannot deny or, or pass on. We see the reality of the resurrection all around us. And Paul gave many valid proofs of Christ's resurrection and if Christ rose again, then we too are going to receive resurrected bodies. And so Paul says now in verse 20, simply this, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul moves in out of verse 20 to, to move out of the argument of the resurrection to just simply say in an emphatic way, Christ is risen. We can't deny this. We don't want to argue this any longer. It's one of the most substantiated uh, realities and events in history. And Paul ties in something very important now. He says that Christ has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when he says those that have fallen asleep, he's speaking of those that have passed on, those that have died. And Christ has become the first fruits of those. What does he mean by that? What's the significance of that? Because it can easily be overlooked and missed here. But when Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he's drawing in this Old Testament imagery where they would have the feast of first fruits. And at the feast of first fruits, the people would bring in the first of the harvest. The harvest would come and they're like, oh man, that's great. We get to eat, this is great. But what they do is they would say, we're gonna bring the first of our harvest, the first fruits of it, and we're gonna bring it as an offering to the Lord. We're gonna declare our thanks to God for his provision, but in so doing, we're gonna say, God, we believe that there is more to come, that this is not it, that there's more that's gonna come. We're gonna give you the first fruits, but in anticipation of what is still to come. Leviticus chapter 23 verse 9 to 11 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So that was the time for Israel to give thanks to the Lord, to recognize God's provision but also in faith say, we know, Lord, that there's gonna be more to come. And in the same way, Jesus now, as Paul says, has become the first fruits of our resurrection, that he was the first to be born again from, or, or to come back from the dead, but it also anticipates that there are many more that are going to follow in that. That speaks of you and me who are going to receive resurrected bodies just as Jesus did himself. And so 
This is speaking uh, again towards those that were saved and have passed away, all right? And, and it, Paul says they fall asleep. That's that euphemism, right? Fall asleep, they, they passed away. See, what Paul's saying is their physical bodies may be in the grave. Their spirits are with the Lord right now. They've gone on to be in the presence of the Lord, but one day that physical body will also be raised anew and given a new body fit for eternity. And so Jesus' resurrection now has set in motion an order for other resurrections too. See, the Feast of First Fruits, it's so wonderful to look at as we bring to mind the different feasts of Israel because the feasts of Israel all point to the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, how he's fulfilled the first of the feasts and will fulfill the other fall feasts at his second coming. He's fulfilled the first part of them in this first coming and will continue to fulfill them at his second coming. They all point to Jesus. You see, Jesus came and was crucified on when? The Passover. The Passover, when they would gather a lamb, well, Jesus came to be that Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He was crucified on Passover. When did they celebrate first, uh, Feast of first fruits? The day after Passover Sabbath, all right? When did Jesus rise again from the grave? The day after the Passover Sabbath. They had to wait before they came to the tomb till after the Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. It's a double Sabbath. And so Jesus rose again, fulfilling now what the Feast of first fruits was all pointing to. It's amazing to see God's plan in all this, all through the Old Testament, how all these things that Israel would be observing ultimately would point to Jesus and how he would fulfill them. So awesome how the word is put together. Well, look at verse 21. And, and this, is, this is cool because Paul says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, we get into some interesting things here when we look at what Paul is saying, because what we see here in these two verses is that there are two representatives of humanity. Two representatives of humanity. For since by man, notice this here, I'm gonna see if I can, okay. By man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, notice this here, all die even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So what we see, Paul is comparing these two representatives of humanity. One of them brought death, one of them brings life. See, through the fall of Adam, we all inherited this sin nature, right? We're born into sin, the Bible tells us. We, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. That's a, a part of our DNA that goes all the way back to Adam. And so Paul says, listen, by that one man who brought sin into the world, all now face the repercussions of death. Now you might look at that and you go, man, I don't, I don't like that deal. That seems really unfair to me, doesn't it? Don't you ever sit back and go, that doesn't seem right that I have to bear the consequences of what somebody else once did. Going all the way back to the garden with Adam. We may not like that truth, but it's the reality in which we live. We're born in sin, but that's not the reality that we need to remain in. It's true that Adam stands as our representative head. He's the father in a sense of all humanity. It's been called federal headship. Let me write this down, federal headship, all right? That's a kind of big word here. But we see that there are two that represent that. Two, 
two men that weren't born of normal means. Adam, created by God, Jesus, born of a virgin. So these two men now are representatives of the federal headship. A federal head is one who through a covenant relationship represents or stands in for someone else. Now the issue people can have is that again, I don't like that. I've got a person standing in for me. I'd rather be my own person. I'd rather, you know, have to deal with my own consequences that I've produced rather than somebody else's. We don't like that Adam is our representative because Adam failed. He's like, he's not a good representative. If I was him, man, I would have gone down much differently. I would never have eaten of that fruit, right? I certainly wouldn't let the woman get near that tree, that's for sure. Not that we're blaming her, right? <laughs> Completely, maybe 98% or so. But what we think is that I would never go down that path, right? Well, I think we would have exactly done what Adam did. But you see, here's the deal. Instead of thinking that you've been unfairly punished, recognize what God was actually working out for us. Look at Romans chapter five, verse 12 to 17 with me here. And this gets kind of wordy, so try to stay with me here on this. But this backs up kind of what Paul's saying here in these verses uh, of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. Romans five says this, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Notice that. Adam is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned to the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So yes, we were brought into serious consequences by one man's act, right? So we see uh, by the one man's offense, many died. So that's the problem right there. One man brought death. He brought sin into the world and sin leads to death. So by one man, we see death comes into the world. But in a greater way, we were delivered by one man's act. Notice this, we see here that much more, let me find that here, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life, will be given life, will have life, and it's through the one greater, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. You see, we might not like the idea that one man brought sin in the world, but I'm very thankful that by one man, God allowed the world to be forgiven of sin, to be set free, redeemed, and have everlasting life. If we don't have the one, we can't have the other. You see, this is so important for us to see. And so God's gift of grace, it says, it abounded to many. Those that wonder how one man can save so many, the answer is right here, because through one man, 
Sin infected all, but so too through one man, sin can be cleared and salvation provided. That's the great wisdom of God in allowing that. I thought so many times like, man, why did Adam have to blow it? Things could have been so much better. Why, why do I have to be a product of what Adam did? But thankfully, God in his wisdom said, sin's gonna be passed into the world through this man, but through the greater one, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, salvation will come to all. We no longer have to try to work it out. If we think we can solve the problem on our own, say, God, let me just be the one that's responsible for me. Well, then that means you're gonna be responsible to atone for your sin. And what is the wages of sin? It's death. You gotta pay that price then. Nobody can get by thinking that, oh, I'm just gonna ride this out and, and never sin. It's all gonna be good. No, you're gonna end up every bit like Adam and have to pay that consequence. But Jesus stepped in to pay that for you and for me. He provided life now and life everlasting through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness and the payment of our sin. Praise the Lord for that. So now we see, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, we see that now all shall be made alive in Jesus Christ. And in no way does this imply any kind of universal salvation as some people might go, oh, look it, all are gonna be made alive. It's all gonna work out in the end. Jesus came and he paid the price. So now everybody can go to heaven happily ever after. Some people like to try to connect this, but notice what Paul's saying. It's in Christ, those that are in Christ. It's not everybody. It's those that have put their faith and their trust in the work that Jesus did for us on the cross now shall be made alive meaning that we have the hope and assurance of everlasting life being resurrected in glory. Praise God for that. That's good news, isn't it, my friends? But notice this, verse 23, it says, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So we see here now that there is an order to this, not an odor, okay? There's new bodies, it's gonna be good, all right? There's a new order, or there's an order to the resurrection. The order is as follows. First of all, we see, as Paul points out, Jesus Christ, the first fruits of our resurrection. So Jesus rose first. Now, yes, there were those that rose from the dead prior. In the Old Testament, we saw people that were raised from the dead. To the Gospels, we saw that, but they were raised from the dead only to have to die again. Jesus is the first that rose again, never to die again risen with a resurrected glorified body so he's the first fruits he's the first in the order of the resurrection secondly the church when does that happen well paul points out on first thessalonians 4 at the end of verse 16 and 17 and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the lord that's speaking of the rapture of the church when jesus comes again at the rapture He's gonna raise the dead in Christ. Because Paul's writing to church thinking, what's happened to our loved ones? They've died, what's gonna, what's gonna be the end of them? What about when Christ comes, what's gonna happen to them? Paul says, when Christ comes at the rapture, they're gonna be raised again. And then we who are alive will be caught up and we're gonna meet the Lord in the air and we're gonna be united with all of the church at that time. So that's the second part. Yeah, that's gonna be great, isn't it? And that can happen like anytime, guys. 
I'm, I keep hoping one of those days it's just going to happen. I'm ready. I can't wait for that to come. So we're going to be given our resurrected bodies at that time in, in the rapture. And then after the rapture, we move into the tribulation, right? But now there are going to be those that in the tribulation who realize I made a big mistake. Jesus is real. And they give their life to the Lord during the tribulation. And there will be those that will be persecuted in the tribulation for their faith. They will die. There will be martyrs in the tribulation. But they will be resurrected. And they'll be resurrected and raised from the dead at Jesus' second coming. Where they'll be raised to life and they will enter into the millennial reign of Christ. As Revelation 20 verse 4 tells us. And that's going to include Old Testament saints that will be raised from the dead and brought into the millennium. And then... Last part of this order of the resurrection is the millennial saints, because now we know that there'll be those that survive the tribulation, and those that survive the tribulation with faith in Jesus are gonna be brought in the millennium in their earthly bodies. And they're gonna to continue to live. There's gonna be reproduction, there's gonna be population growth, it's gonna be wonderful, it's gonna be a, an awesome time. But there'll be those that in their earthly bodies will die. And they're going to be raised again now into an eternal body. That We don't know when. That could be instantaneous at that point. When they're in the millennium, maybe when they die, they just are given a, a glorified body instantaneously. But that's the last of the order of the first resurrection. Now, we also hear of a, another resurrection that's going to take place. And that happens after the millennium. And that is for unbelievers. Revelation 20, if I turn over there with me, Revelation 20 speaks a, a lot more about this. Let me read a few verses to you. If you got your Bibles, Revelation 20. If for nothing else is to hear those pages turning in church, which is a good thing. Revelation 20, verse 5. It says there, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Let me skip down to verse 11. It says there, then I saw uh, a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what we see here is that after the millennium, the dead are raised back up. And the dead is speaking to those that are unbelievers. And they're going to be raised back up. In fact, let me just continue on here. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Look at what Paul writes here. He says, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and power and authority, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So, Paul speaks about the end coming at the last resurrection. You see, Christ comes back again after that seven-year tribulation 
with the raptured saints at his side. Jude talks about that. Daniel talks about it. Then there's the sheep and the goat judgment, right? So those that have survived through the tribulation, he separates those that are the believers and the unbelievers. And the, belie- the unbelievers are cast away into Hades. It's kind of like a holding place while they await their final judgment, which happens at the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. And then those who survive the tribulation move on into the millennial reign of Christ, right? And then those who, uh, and then after the millennium, what we see is that the dead that have been holding in Hades are raised back up, where it says that the sea and the dead and Hades are delivered up and they stand before God where they give an account. And that's for unbelievers only. That's the great white throne judgment where they receive their final sentencing and then are placed into the lake of fire, it tells us. You see, um, all through the tribulation or the millennium, I should say, it's a perfect time of righteousness. Satan is bound, cast in the lake of, or cast in the bottomless pit, bound. But then after the, uh, near the end of the millennium, he's released. And you kind of wonder, why would you do that? You got him, he's down. It's been perfect, but he's released where he goes and deceives the nations again. You might wonder, why would that happen? Well, God's allowing people to see that. The, the issue is so many people love to say the problem, the reason humanity is wicked, the reason humanity is sinful is because they're simply a product of their environment. But we're gonna go through a perfect environment in the millennium. And we're gonna see that man still has a propensity to sin. Not the resurrected saints, but those who are still in their earthly bodies during the millennium. Satan's gonna be released at the end. He's gonna deceive the nations. They're gonna lead a rebellion against God that's gonna quickly be squashed by God and tells us that Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And then that's when all the dead unbelievers are raised up. They're gonna have a resurrection, but it's gonna be for final sentencing where they're placed in the lake of fire themselves. That's the second death. And at this point, Jesus now, it says, will have put an end to all physical human life where all rule and all authority and power is put under his feet, it tells us here in these verses, verse 24 and 25. Everything that might oppose God is done away with. That's what Paul speaks of as the end. When there's no longer any possibility of a rebellion, of sin, Everything now comes to an end, and that's when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth that will never be tainted or stained by sin again. It'll be perfect. Isn't that gonna be great, my friends? Aren't you looking forward to that day? I sure am. Eternity's gonna be, see, the program of eternity is not gonna be boring. Man, it's eventful. There's a lot of stuff happening. I mean, we're gonna be like witnessing just some exciting things that are, are going on through eternity. Not just floating on a cloud, my friends. We are going to be having a great time. Well, it says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So again, when the new heaven and the new earth are are created, there's no more death. There's no more cause of death because there's no more sin. There's no more opposition. There's no more humanity. We're all now in our resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, made new, where, as we'll see later in in, uh, 1 Corinthians next week, where 
Corruption must put on incorruption. Immortality must put on immortality. So all things will be made new. There'll be no more death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy because it's that final curtain. It, 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 it stops people from ever having opportunity now to repent and be right with God. Some people might think, well, after I die, then I'll take it up with the Lord. We'll, we'll bargain things out. There's no opportunity for that. You stand before God and you give an account of that time. There's gonna be no arguing. There's gonna be no you know, debating your merits. That has to be dealt with while we have breath in this life. So we see in verse 27, that's a kind of an obscure, difficult sentence to kind of follow when it's hard to know the, the pronouns and who they're speaking of here. You can paraphrase it this way. For God has put all things under Christ's feet, but when God says all things are put under Christ, it is obvious that God is excluded who put all things under Christ. It goes on to say in verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. See, Christ was sent by the Father to rule and reign and establish the kingdom of God. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, didn't he? Now, when all things are finally under the reign of Christ, then the Son will hand everything over to the Father who will be all in all as it's always intended to be. All throughout eternity, there will continue to be this relationship between the Father and the Son where God will be all in all. Now, Paul goes on in verse 29 to bring up something kind of interesting here. There's been, some have suggested a, a couple hundred different interpretations as to what Paul is speaking of in this verse. Here's what he says in verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, the most likely thing that Paul is, is bringing up here is he's looking at a, a pagan custom that was oftentimes done in being baptized for the dead and trying to ensure a better standing for those that have passed on, going through some kind of ritual rite. And perhaps that was something that began to influence the, the Christian church or the Corinthian church here that Paul is addressing. Now, Paul's not advocating it nor, nor really giving allowance for it. It's not scriptural being baptized for the dead, of course. But the point was, Paul's saying, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then why in the world are you baptizing for the dead? If the dead just stay dead, then why go through that formality, right? It doesn't make sense. You're kind of being hypocritical if you say, oh, we don't believe in, in dead people being resurrected. Oh, and remember the Corinthian church said, oh, we believe Jesus rose again, but that's not the same for all of us. And Paul says, you're just being a bunch of hypocrites if then you're baptizing for the dead if you don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. So it's most likely this is what Paul has in mind, an, an alternative interpretation which I'll leave with you is that by being baptized, what the Corinthian Christians were doing was publicly taking the places of their fellow believers who had died, were perhaps martyred for their faith. And so what they're doing is now they're coming in, they're stepping in the waters of baptism saying, we wanna commit ourselves to the work of the Lord. We're gonna take up the ranks of our uh, brothers that have passed away. We're gonna, we're gonna get baptized now and continue on here in their vacancy. So it could mean that's, it could be that's what Paul is referencing. I prefer to lean towards this other, you know, uh, this pagan kind of custom that was being adopted in or observed. And so we see that happening even 
among many kind of rites today where people are looking to pray for, uh, you know, deceased ones and praying for or doing something to kind of ensure a better standing for them. It's not scriptural. Once a person dies, that's it. That's why we need to be sure that we're right with God now while we have life. And then Paul goes on to say on the, the merits of the resurrection and what that means for us today, he says in verse 30, then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Otherwise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, Paul had numerous times put his life on the line just to live out the gospel, to go and advance the gospel as he, as he traveled around as a, a, a great missionary evangelist. Paul garnered many enemies, didn't he, right? Now, we don't have any account of him having to, um, you know, fight with beasts at Ephesus, as was common in, you know, Roman Colosseums to throw Christians into the wild animals and have people gather around and, and watch for entertainment to see Christians be torn apart by wild beasts. We don't have any account of that happening to Paul. Perhaps what Paul is, is referencing is when he was in Ephesus and what happened, a wild mob, came against him. I mean, they, they were like, Paul is, is ruining our livelihood here. There were those that were crafting idols and selling them in their, in their um, shops. And Paul was seeing many people, remember he spent the most time in Ephesus, many people were getting saved. And these silversmiths making idols were going like, Paul's ruining our business. We can't have this. We got to do away with this guy. And they began to incite a crowd. Many people gathered into the, the theater ready to take Paul out. Many of them are there going, we don't know why we're here. We're just following the crowd, man. What's going on? We don't know what's happening. But it began to incite a riot against Paul to where Paul's friends had to say, Paul, you got to get out of Dodge here. It's time, man. And he had to slip away just to kind of spare his life. But Paul understood what it meant to lay his life down for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. Notice he says, I die daily, right? It was like he would wake up every day wondering, is this the day that I'm going to come home and see Jesus? Is this the day one of those stonings is actually going to take and is going to be the end of me? Like that's kind of Paul's mentality every day he's waking up. Is this the time that one of my enemies are going to get the best of me? But he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I know where I'm going. I know what Jesus has in store for me. I know the promise and the assurance I have of eternal life, and I'm gonna give my all to Jesus. It doesn't matter what goes on. Paul endured all these troubles uh, because of the hope and the reality of the resurrection. To where Paul could write in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, man, my life is all about Christ to the point where I'm willing to die daily, lay my life down on the line every day. But guess what? If it actually ends in me dying, that's gonna to be to my gain. That's gonna to be to my advantage because now I'm gonna be with Jesus forever and ever. That's what I long for. That's what Paul was hoping for. Man, that changes how you live and what you do when you live with that kind of understanding. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. There's always something better in store. See, if there's no life after this, if there's no hope, then we might as well just live calloused and cavalier in our attitude. Like Paul says, if that's the way it is, then we might as well say, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
But Paul realizes that's not the end. There's more to this life as we live it for Christ. And there's more to come. So he says in verse 33, and we'll end with these two verses, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. These Corinthian Christians had certainly been corrupted in their views. It could have come from the sect of the Sadducees who was a religious group that didn't believe in the resurrection. It could have come from Greek philosophers that taught a whole different idea of the afterlife. But this belief not only corrupted their eschatological view, it corrupted their present lifestyle. They began to see sin as no big deal since there was really no consequences to face for it then any longer. Listen, in the same way, we need to beware of those who might become a bad influence in our own lives. Even Christians who aren't yielded to the spirit or hold a high view of God's word can be a bad influence. Choose wisely who you keep company with. And let us live in this world with the reality of what is to come, a reality of the resurrection, the hope that we have. May it change how we live because Paul says here, awake to righteousness and do not sin. See those, as, as John would write in 1 John 3, those that have that hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. If we live every day with that expectancy of Christ's coming, which could come at any time. No, still not, okay. <laughs> it could come at any time. Man, that causes me to live differently. It causes me to say, I don't wanna be caught up to meet the Lord and be like, hey Lord, let me just, let me just explain what was going on there. I don't know what I was thinking. Lord, sorry about that. I don't want to be explaining anything. I want to be ready to say, Lord, here I am. It's so good to see you. I want to be living pure, holy, putting sin aside and being awakened to righteousness, not being lulled to sleep by the course of this world, but living for something greater, someone greater, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, and with this, I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd come up, and we're going to close with a song here today. It says here in 1 Thessalonians 5, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let us be watchful. Let us be ready for the Lord's return. Let us have that hope that there's more to come and let, us, let that cause us to live differently here today. All right, let's stand together. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for the life you've given us, that you, the last and greater Adam, are our representative, that you brought righteousness into a world that was tainted by sin. And in and through you, Jesus, you've made us all alive now. May that cause us to live with excitement and joy and a desire to awaken righteousness, to not live according to the world, but to live that hope of what you have in store for us. Lord, may we be a witness with that hope that we have. May we share that with others and see many come to know you, Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't have that hope of where you're gonna go when you die, that can change right now. 
Like I said earlier, the Bible says that the cost of sin is death. If your sins have not been dealt with, it leads to death. And we cannot deal with our sins ourselves. We can't be a good enough person, live a good enough life, do enough good to earn our way because we'll always fall short. That's what sin does. But Jesus came to pay the penalty for that sin by dying on a cross and offering forgiveness for those that will put their trust in Jesus. He died and he rose again to show that that worked. It was validated. God accepted that offering. He's alive today to give you life. And all you are called to do is to turn from your sin, repent, and to turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. If you've not done that today, I encourage you to do that. Call it to Jesus and pray a simple prayer of asking Jesus to forgive you, acknowledging your sin, and asking Jesus to come and be your Lord and Savior and to strengthen you to live for him. When you do that, Bible says you become a child of God and you are given as a free gift that gift of eternal life. Accept it today. If you've done that, would you come and talk to me after? I'd love to share more with you about that or talk to those available for prayer after. We love to do that.